I am speaking to you at a moment of grave crisis. I'm Jeff Turner, and this is Recall. It's a series about history. Not the ancient past, but history that's still hot to the touch. In this first season, I explore a revolutionary political movement that brought a modern democracy to the brink. You can find Recall, How to Start a Revolution, on the CBC Listen app or wherever you get your podcasts. This is a CBC Podcast. Hi, I'm Dr. Brian Goldman. Welcome to a bonus episode of The Dose, now available every Tuesday, dedicated to your questions about COVID-19. Joining me today by Skype is Dr. Susie Hota. She's the Medical Director for Infection Prevention and Control at University Health Network in Toronto. Dr. Hota, welcome to The Dose. Thanks for having me. I'm going to jump right into some of those questions from our listeners. Um, What is currently known about how uh, this virus is transmitted uh, when a person has no symptoms of COVID-19? So actually, you know, this is an area that I think there's a lot of attention that's being focused on uh, currently because we recognize that people can have infection and not show symptoms. We also recognize that people might actually have infection that's brewing, so they have the virus detectable in their body, but they haven't yet shown their symptoms. We call that sort of pre-symptomatic. And then, of course, there are those that show the symptoms and, and have clearly the virus in their body. And we know that this occurs with a number of other respiratory viruses too. But the big question is, what does it mean to others? So how infectious are you before you show symptoms or if you never show symptoms? And that's a question that's really hard for us to answer. Um, There are lots of case reports that over time have come out that have looked at people who've had few symptoms or no symptoms and what's happened in terms of transmission within, you know, families or household contacts or close contacts. You know, it doesn't necessarily mean that they're transmitting the same way as you would if you were just a, a, a less than close contact in the community or, you know, if you were a roommate of a patient in a hospital. So we're trying to figure out how to extrapolate that into what it means for everybody and how much that might be driving transmission. And, and at this point, it remains unknown. Is it fair to say then, based on what you've just said, that the sicker you are with obvious COVID-19, the more infectious you are? At the moment, we know that when you're sick, you are infectious. In that early stage of sickness in particular, you are infectious. It's a bit controversial as to within the few days preceding your symptoms really being noticeable to you, whether or not you're infectious to others. And part of that is it's hard for people to think back to when they actually began getting their symptoms. So, you know, trying to delineate the two uh, and separate out that pre-symptomatic phase to when you actually have symptoms is a very difficult thing to do uh, looking backwards. So what's the best, the the optimal time to get tested for COVID-19, you know, as soon as someone is suspected of having the virus or, or only once they become symptomatic? I mean, I would say it would be once you become symptomatic, because that's when we have a higher chance of isolating the virus. I mean, the other thing to balance with this, this with is if you were to test people before they got symptoms or in the absence of symptoms, you don't really know how to interpret a negative test result. It could just be a false negative. So I think recognizing that studies have shown fairly consistently that you have high levels of virus that are detectable in the samples that you would take for testing at the time that you have symptoms. I would say at the earliest point of onset of symptoms, that's really your best time of of being able to get an accurate answer. 
We have another question here uh, that uh, is all about trying to screen or identify potential cases. Uh, we've all seen on, on television those temperature guns that have been used in various places in Asia to identify potential cases. Are temperature guns effective at identifying potential COVID-19 cases? Yeah, so fever is one of the symptoms that people tend to get when they um, have COVID-19. It's maybe one of the more reliable symptoms that you, you would have with an infection. But that said, it can develop a little bit later, so not immediately when you're infected. We know that bit. The other thing that makes it a bit challenging to actually use um, these temperature guns to help us with screening people to see if they have this infection is that those guns aren't always very accurate in picking up your actual body temperature. So it could be misleading. Given that and the fact that I'm not convinced that it would be any more useful than asking people symptoms if they feel feverish or if they've at home detected a temperature, we haven't really used that as a, a measure in most places across Canada to help us with screening out those individuals who might have COVID-19 infection. Uh, we have a complete change of subject here, um, and we're getting a lot of questions about, about how to protect yourself at home uh, or at places where you work. Uh, this is about cleaning surfaces. When cleaning surfaces, will vinegar or essential oils actually kill the virus? Vinegars and essential oils are not reliable ways of trying to get rid of the virus from surfaces. Um, we don't really know how uh, stable they are, and we certainly haven't seen that they are uh, effective across the board in getting rid of the virus. What is helpful is using even just soap and water, and that mechanically can help to remove it from the surface, and it can be inactivated just uh, by doing that, or using other regular sort of disinfectants that you can buy from the supermarket. Most of those are effective. Um, this virus is an envelope virus. It's a type of virus that's it's got a characteristic about it um, where it's surrounded by an envelope and that makes it actually fairly easy to get rid of from surfaces. So I would go more with commercial um, cleaning products rather than trying to make your own up at home. And so it's certainly a lot less expensive than those uh, surface disinfectant wipes that are commercially available, isn't it? Right. There's no need to actually go out and buy those kinds of, you know, uh, commercial grade wipes. One advantage of using a wipe is that you it's sort of a one-time use. And so you might want to also think about your practices when you clean. If you're using a dirty old rag over and over again, then that can get contaminated and sits in a moist environment and, and it's not the best way to do things. So, you know, making sure that you use a wipe on you do one wipe per surface and then fold over your cloth and then, you know, use a clean cloth or a clean surface of the cloth each time that you're wiping a surface or something disposable and laundering the cleaning cloth as well uh, frequently is really important to consider as well. The public is certainly hearing stories about lack of personal protective equipment uh, in the United States and, and to some lesser extent in some hospitals in Canada. And we've had some questions about homemade masks. How effective are they? Uh, and if someone were to, to make a homemade mask, what materials would they want to use? So I, I really can't comment too much on that because it does depend on the material. And, you know, when we have masks in hospitals, they've been tested and they've gone through a process to make sure that they are quality assured and that they actually are fluid resistant, for example, if that's the grade that you require. So they go through a whole process to make sure that they are going to be able to do what they need to do. And essentially what a mask needs to do, just a regular procedure or face mask, is it needs to act as, an, as a good effective barrier. Um, so that you don't get exposure 
to droplets or you don't release droplets to others. So when, when you try to make a, a mask at home, it really is difficult to answer that question as to whether or not it's effective. Here's uh, another question. What do they mean by herd immunity? I think I know the answer to that question, but what do they mean by herd immunity? And when do you think it will come into effect when it comes to COVID-19? Herd immunity is really um, the sense that once you have a large enough people, a group of people in a population who are immune to a certain kind of infection, then it protects a few others that are not immune to it. And usually you need to have quite high numbers or percentages of people that are immune in order for that to be effective, like 95% of the population, for example, depending on what it is that you're dealing with. I don't think we have a good sense of how that's going to work with COVID-19. There's still so much we're learning about this virus. Um, What I will say, though, is that transmission does slow down as you put measures in place that reduce that risk of people being exposed to one another, uh, especially a bunch of people who are susceptible or um, not immune to the virus being in contact with each other. And so rather than thinking about herd immunity, we're kind of taking the approach of, let's just try to make sure that people are not congregating in areas so that you have a whole bunch of susceptible people um, together in a space. And one of them might actually get infected and it could take out, it can then travel much more rapidly if these people are, you know, closer contacts. And that's what the whole concept of social distancing is based upon. So somewhat related concepts, not exactly the same. The idea is what can we do to try and um, slow down or reduce that risk of transmission within a population? But these are certainly early days, and we're nowhere near reaching uh, a substantial level of herd immunity in our population, are we? No, not at all. Um, Certainly not. And, uh, you know, to to reach herd immunity, I think you'd be aiming to ensure that the whole population or a large proportion of the population gets infected um, and then immune. And that's certainly not the goal here. What we're trying to do is slow down transmission, reduce that risk, make sure that we actually are able to cope with that. Because, uh, you know, if we were aiming for herd immunity, I think that would be a that could cause a lot of uh, damage and a lot of harm to, to the population. Unless, of course, the herd immunity is provided by a vaccine, which we don't have yet, but we hope we'll have down the road. Correct. Exactly. So we haven't really even gotten to that point at this point in time. In my head, it's not a consideration yet because vaccine is probably many, many months, if not over a year uh, away um, from being a reality for, for Canadians. So vaccines take a long time. They take a long time in order to develop something that seems like it could be a good candidate to test it to get the regulatory approvals, to actually get it um, licensed, and then, of course, to mass produce it and roll it out so that you can actually vaccinate everybody. Uh, That would be a great way to actually introduce immunity into the population. We're just not there yet. Amina is an activist during the Arab Spring. Her blog, Gay Girl in Damascus, attracts readers from around the world. When she's mysteriously abducted, her followers mobilize, desperate to save her. What they find shocks them. I'm Samira Moyedin, the host of Gay Girl Gone, a new six-part series from CBC. Listen wherever you get your podcasts. Here's another question uh, that a listener wrote. We often hear that the people with uh, compromised immune systems are more susceptible to contracting COVID-19 and getting the most serious forms of the disease. So are there ways that people can build up their immune system to be more resistant to COVID-19? 
You know, there's not really any medically proven way that you can actually build up your immune system to fight this off. What I do think is important, though, is taking care of your overall health. So during this time, it's very stressful for people to be thinking about what's going on. And, and many people find that it's difficult to cope in this environment. You know, we're social distancing, where many things are closed, our lives have changed. It's really important that you don't forget to take your usual medications as required, that you get the sleep that you need to try and eat well, to try and exercise and get fresh air. Just because we're trying to do this social isolation does not, or social distancing, pardon me, it doesn't mean that you need to not go outside. You do need to get fresh air. People should be thinking about how they can take care of themselves so that they're strong enough to actually be in a good position to fight this infection off should they get it. So uh, taking cod liver oil or eating more kale isn't going to make that much of an evidence-based difference, will it? No, sadly, I haven't seen anything in terms of dietary recommendations or supplements or anything that would be effective uh, in helping you to fight this off. In addition to the general public, some frontline healthcare workers wrote to us they're feeling anxious about seeing patients knowing that they may be in the early stages of COVID-19 and not showing typical symptoms. How can healthcare workers know that they're doing no harm at this time? This is a really challenging thing. And of course, as healthcare workers, we know we're on the front lines and, and we may be exposed to the unknown. Uh, that can be any day. But of course, with this pandemic, it's especially important and, and on top of minds of people. And it's true that the symptoms can be very vague. They can be hard to point out. They can, and for people to even declare, uh, and they can overlap with many other things that people come into the hospital with. So it is a big challenge. And I fully acknowledge um, that anxiety that, that many healthcare workers are having. Having. I think the important thing is to feel comfortable with what you need to do for protecting yourself with personal protective equipment, what you need to do to try and screen people. Uh, and we've been working on all this for months now in our hospitals um, and being connected to who you need to ask if you need support for any of these things. Healthcare workers, you know, this is a very challenging time for all of us. My message to you and, uh, you know, everybody else who's feeling the same way is remember that there are teams behind you that are there to support you and be there to help you feel prepared for, for some of the unknowns that are, are coming our way. Are we getting to the point at which healthcare providers should just assume everyone has COVID-19 until proven otherwise? I don't think we can assume that everybody has it until proven otherwise. I mean, I think we have to have a low index of suspicion. So when people come in with symptoms that may or may not be COVID-19, think more about the may than the may not um, to try and identify who needs to be tested, who needs to be isolated, what you need to do to try and protect yourself. You know, really step up on the hand hygiene and cleaning your hands uh, as much as possible. It's one thing you can do routinely when you don't really know what you're dealing with. And advocating for personal protective equipment. Absolutely. Personal pr protective equipment is so critical and so key to our ability to um, get through this safely and, and well. Personal protective equipment is something that is a bit hard to come by in many parts of the world right now. This is a global problem. So we're really working on strategies to try and conserve and use it effectively and where the evidence is and um, not overuse it or waste it. Um, and try to have a good eye on where our personal protective equipment is going within hospitals so we don't end up in a position where we are feeling short. Uh, here's a question that I thought I knew the answer to, but now I'm not quite so sure. Um, the question was about uh, whether uh, pregnant healthcare workers might face um, some special risks from exposure to, to patients with COVID-19. What do we know about that? <laughs> 
Unfortunately, we don't know enough. I wish I could answer that question a little more clearly. Um, you know, there are some early, very small numbers case reports that uh, suggested maybe there is a risk of preterm labor in patients who were infected with COVID-19 who were pregnant. Um, however, all the studies that I've seen, they're very, very small numbers and very hard to interpret. There is also other data that suggests that pregnant women are at no additional risk, uh, and nor are their fetuses, nor the babies. Um, so we don't know what to do with that information right now. Uh, I think some societies are advocating for a very cautious approach. So trying to uh, limit the exposure of pregnant healthcare workers, for example, or people who are pregnant who might be working in areas where you might be exposed to um, people who can have infection uh, just until we get more information. But it's not something that we have a good answer to yet. And finally, uh, this is, I guess, a related question. It comes from a listener who's looking to the future. He asks, you know, I'm wondering if there's any mathematical models that will predict if we're going to have an increase of, in births uh, in about nine months due to the isolation. Mm-hmm. Will we see a COVID-19 baby boom or boomlet, if you want to call it that? <laughs> It's certainly a possibility. Um, You know, uh, our advice has been very much stay at home and uh, spend lots of time with your family and your loved ones and try not to socialize too much outside of that. I, you know, I guess we will wait and see. Maybe there is a silver lining to this this whole experience in the end. And there will be some happy news for some people in nine months. Might be nice to get some happy news after what we've been hearing lately. Dr. Susie Hoda, thank you so much for this. You're very welcome. Dr. Hota is Medical Director for Infection Prevention and Control at University Health Network in Toronto. If you have questions you'd like answered about COVID-19, email the dose at cbc.ca or tweet us at cbcwhitecoat or me at nightshiftmd and use the hashtag thedosecbc. Look for our regular episode in your feed on Thursday. We know that many of you are grappling with the news that the coronavirus has spread into several long-term care homes. So this week, we'll be answering the question, how can I support my loved ones in long-term care and help them stay safe? If there's something in particular you'd like us to talk about, let us know. Again, it's the dose at cbc.ca. This episode was produced by Pasquale Petnicchio, Donna Dingwall, and myself with technical help from Austin Pomeroy and Laura Antonelli. As always, the dose wants you to be better informed about your health. But if you're looking for medical advice, see your healthcare provider. I'm Dr. Brian Goldman. Until your next dose. For more CBC Podcasts, go to cbc.ca slash podcasts.